You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we'll talk about the English space rock legends, Hawkwind, and hopefully prove they're much more than Lemmy's group before Motorhead. But first, we have a new interview with a repeat guest on Sound Opinions, the leader of Husker Du and of Sugar, and the voice of 14 solo albums, Bob Mould. Bob, welcome back to Sound Opinions. Thanks, you guys. Good to be back. Uh, we've had you on several times throughout your amazing career. It seems like as good a time as any to uh, visit with you again, Bob, because you've got this tremendous record, Blue Hearts. The last time we talked about you on this show was in regards to this really fun, upbeat, <laughs> bubblegumish rock punk record that you put out uh, Sunshine in 2019. Rock. Yes. Yay. <laughs> Take me back to Camp And it was interesting because I think you were swimming against the tide again because there was a lot of darkness in the world and the point of that record in many ways was to sort of provide a little bit of sanity in in the midst of that. Mm-hmm. But you're you're back in that dark place with this record and not in a bad way either, but just a heavy, hard-hitting, darker record, a polar opposite of Sunshine Rock in many ways. What happened in that period of time? Yeah, thanks for the kind words. Well, I mean, you know, Sunshine Rock, which came out you know, in the spring of 2019 was an intentionally bright record. I think, you know, Beauty and Ruin and Patch the Sky, the albums prior to Sunshine Rock were both pretty dark and informed with, you know, the loss of each of my parents in succession. So Sunshine Rock was a happier affair. And, and you know, that was a, that was, a, it took a lot of effort on my part to write a happier record. Um, <laughs> Blue Hearts, not, uh, this one's real easy to write. I, uh, you know, with Sunshine Rock, I was trying to stay away from the politics. I thought everything was self-explanatory, but clearly, uh, it, I guess I feel, you know, the compulsion to, uh, you know, sort of let people know, no, things are not all right. We are in dire straits and people, come on, wake up. What are we doing here? Yeah, well, 2019 was not... Uh uh, a party of a year, but compared to 2020. <laughs> yeah, is... we, uh, you know, we've really, we've really gone down, gone down considerably. Our stock as a, as a country is down pretty far in the world view. And, uh, you know, we, we have absolutely no leadership whatsoever. We have a, you know, a bunch of, you know, racist liars that are fleecing the country. And yeah, I thought I, I thought it best to speak up while I could. Yeah, yeah, the time is now. And so even when you were recording Sunshine Rock, though, I loved the fact that American Crisis came together, and it didn't seem, at at that time, while recording that album, but it didn't seem quite of a piece. It was kind of like, okay, this is another strand we can follow. Yeah, definitely. It, um, it was meant to be the second to last song on Sunshine Rock, and the subject matter was a little heavy. And so, yeah, I had American Crisis in my back pocket. I had Forecast of Rain, the music in my back pocket. And, you know, through the summer and fall of 2019, I was doing a lot of solo electric shows in, in Europe and playing a lot of guitar, writing a lot of guitar music. And then when I got back to the U.S. in November of 2019 and you know, sort of re-entered the, uh, the all-news, all, as-entertainment-all-the-time world that is America, I was just appalled at how how polarized and how divided things had become. The that that song "American Crisis" came out as a single earlier this year, and it, it hit at a time 
I, I feel like personally, I, I had a low point of everything that's been going on the last few years. It was one of the worst weeks in American history, as far as I'm concerned. Yes. And uh, it, it seemed like that song, Bob, could have been written that day. to find out that you had written it as part of the, the previous album's uh, writing process is pretty amazing. I mean, it, are, did it kind of blow you or your mind a little bit, too, to put that out and realize, oh, my God, I'm talking about something that just happened in the news this afternoon? Uh, yeah, it was it was very strange. Just to, you know, sort of let the listeners know sort of how our business works, you know, the album was recorded in early February, and it was mastered by the 1st of March. So that's sort of the sign seal delivered part of the album. And then we go into, what's the first track going to be? What's the second track? What's the, you know, all these things leading up to the release date of September 25. And originally, American Crisis was set to be June 1st, which was the, uh, that was the church walk day, right? Right. <laughs> There were peaceful protesters in Lafayette Square near the White House on June 1st, marching, chanting, and then this happened. At about 6.30, half an hour before a citywide curfew was supposed to go into effect, police advanced and with seemingly little warning fired tear gas and smoke canisters into the crowd. This was just before President Trump walked across Lafayette Square to pose for a photograph in front of St. John's Episcopal Church. And uh, I think my publicist said, uh, you know, Record Store Day is going to do their relaunch and they're going to announce on the first. So maybe we should move your announcement to the third. And I'm like, oh, yeah, two days, whatever. So that, you know, we made that decision in early May. And then, you know, the, all of these terrible things, you know, Breonna Taylor and then George Floyd which was Minneapolis, and then the the Bible walk on June first, and I my head was on fire. I'm like, how how does this happen? You know, I mean, timing is everything and nothing, and it was terrible and weird. And how do you promote a record with such a topical song as it's actually happening in real time? I have not had that experience before. So. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Bob, one of the advantages of us getting old. <laughs> <laughs> there aren't too many. Uh, having grown up with you, having grown up together, um, you know, I've seen some comments you've made about, uh, you know, with Husker Du, there was a rage against the growing evangelical conservatism, judgmental, governmental hatred of people of any difference, really. Oh, any difference. It's yeah. kind of like you'd fought the war, and now there's an even worse apocalyptic battle. Yeah, this iteration of... The idea of the television celebrity as as Republican president, you know, backed mainly by evangelicals who, you know, started fighting a culture war back then and have really turned it up over the decades. You know, for me, the sort of the, the moment last fall when it started to all feel way too familiar, I mean, that's when I was noticing the similarities between the Reagan era and the Trump era and... You know, when you add on, you know, this other component, you know, back in 1983, America and the world is two years into HIV AIDS, and it took another three years for Reagan to acknowledge it's that it was a problem. 
but I didn't bargain for that much parallel symbolism. But of course, now we have a pandemic and a president who's trying everything he possibly can to avoid panic, which translates into the stock market falling even one percent you know oh and you know as a student of history i reread and the band plays on by randy schiltz the incredible history of governmental reaction to the hiv aids crisis you know and dr fauci was not a hero he's at the center of things back then uh he was trying to get the government sort of to pay attention but according to the gay activists who were desperately screaming and yelling he wasn't doing enough and you know, now we kind of have, I mean, he's a hero now in he's speaking truth, but man, we're still not doing enough. It's yeah, we're not, we're not doing enough. You know, to be, to be fair, I think Tony Fauci was doing what he could, given, you know, that we he was deep in 12 years of Republicanism. It was probably as tough then as it is now in some ways to have, you know, the truth be heard and to have that compassion when the government's not acknowledging the problem. And to be fair to Fauci, I mean, you know, you know, Larry Kramer and ACT UP, I think, in 89 with the first big, you know, protest that they staged. I mean, Larry and, and Tony were acquaintances. I don't know if they were friends, but I think Larry let Tony know that he was coming after him. And, uh, you know, I think the story actually goes that Larry got arrested. The police were dragging him into NIH and Fauci came down to meet him at the door and said, I know this guy, you know, yeah. be mm-hmm. kind to him. So. I, thought, I thought it was inspiring. Uh, you know, Kramer died and he was a giant in gay rights activism and, yes. and fighting HIV. And actually, he and Fauci became friends <laughs> towards the yes. end of their life. You know, Fauci was saying wonderful things about Kramer and Kramer was like, I still think he was wrong back in the Reagan era. But, you know, and that's a sort of bridging of divides where people can still be people and and form a bond uh that right now we're not seeing i mean even in your beloved minnesota there are places in that state you couldn't go yeah now because you know because maybe you have a, a bumper sticker on your car or you're just bob mold and uh, mm-hmm. you know you don't own any machine guns yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a wild time, and you know I think you know the the tone of Blue Hearts and American Crisis in particular is you know it's a very visceral reaction you know that I'm having to my own history in a way because you know back in 1983 you know I was a guy in a band and we we made aggressive you know, modern or forward-looking records that were, I think the, the politics were on, you know, we were on the correct side of things. But, you know, I wasn't really comfortable with, you know, well, I had no sexual identity, so to speak of. I knew I was gay, you know, mechanically, but, you know, and through the 80s, there's always one of my laments is that I felt like like I could have said more, you know, or I could have done more. And, you know, I think that's part, you know, that lament is, you know, amplified and turned into this group of songs in a way. You know, it's like, I, I'm i not going to, you know, I'm not going to sit by idle and I'm not going to whisper my thoughts mm-hmm. because, you know, we're, we're, we're at a moment here where I think all of us need to be accountable for, for which which side of the fence we want to be on as far as making progress as, as a civilization, I suppose. Is it, is it just a function of being, you know, uh, a more mature person, uh, being able to process things? Because I remember 
the liner notes uh, for like Zen Arcade, for example, I believe I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something in the effect of, you know, revolution begins in the bathroom mirror or something of that, that effect. Mm-hmm. And I remember yeah. it kind of had a profound effect on young me back then. It was just like one of those things where you got, uh, oh, 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 that's how you do that thing. That's how you <laughs> protest. That's how you make your voice heard. You, it starts with you. It doesn't have to be this gigantic thing. So you were speaking to a degree to, um, you know, the, the, the people who wanted some direction about how to proceed, but you just sort of came down on yourself saying, hey, I, I didn't do enough. Um, is it now just a sense of, you know, I know more, I, I, need, I need to do more uh, because I, I have this voice? Was it just a case of just lack of confidence back then to be able to speak out in a way that you felt was necessary? Uh, lack of interaction with the gay community. I, they, I had no identity because I had no role models. I was a, a rock musician in a band and I happened to be gay. So, you know, it, it took it took a long time to get to that identity that is part of who I am. You know, I mean, you know, there was 1994 with the spin article with the with the coming out. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, overwhelmingly the community was really supportive at that time, but there was also those, you know, those couple people that would come up and say, you know, really great that you came out now that 100,000 of us are dead. Mm. I can take my lumps, right? But those things stay with you and people, you know, and there's, uh, there might be a little bit of truth and I don't forget those kind of statements. You know, I jump up to 1998 and when I, you know, let people know I'm going to put the guitar down and and I'm going to start having a gay life in New York City and try to find that identity that I never really had. This is the growth that that you're suggesting, you know, that it, mm-hmm. it did not happen in one weekend at a party. It sort of happened slowly over decades. And now, yeah, of course, I feel way more confident in who I am, what I do, and how my sexual identity informs everything. And I also, you know, understand from spending years in Berlin, you know, and seeing uh, on the average at least one public protest every week, you know, just randomly in a main street. That's what other democracies do. When people are upset, they go in the street because they have to be heard, because they have nothing to lose by letting people know they're angry. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's just little, little, little stuff like that, you know, this sort of s- snowball of life, I guess, or the avalanche of life, maybe. <laughs> After a quick break, we'll continue our discussion with Bob Mould. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My co-host is Greg Cott. And today we are talking with the one and only Bob Mould about his rousing new protest album, Blue Hearts, and his solo career spanning box set, Distortion. You know, I think a lot of artists are uncomfortable with, to speak out on politics. It, it, it can cost you, you know, a percentage of your fan base, you know. And then there's other artists who are saying, you know, what have you got to lose? You got to take a stand now. It's the, these are desperate mm-hmm. times. Just you as a music, you know, aficionado, Bob, how did those protest songs affect you when you were growing up and, and later on in life? Did they have an impact on you in terms of the type of person you wanted to be or the kind of things kind of action you could take to uh, to become politically involved in whatever way? 
Well, I mean, I was born in 1960, and I grew up with, you know, mid-60s, late-60s pop music. So I saw Woodstock, I saw Hendrix, I saw, you know, you know Richie Havens or Phil Oaks, you know, at least images of these people and the stories they were telling. And I saw the, the footage from Vietnam, and, you know, maybe I didn't fully understand it, but that was my first exposure to, you know, this idea that I still maintain as 100% true and possible that music can change the world. So, you know, from there, as in terms of protest music, you know, I would probably look at the first wave of punk rock, you know, whether it was, you know, gay activists like Jimmy Somerville or Tom Robinson. Groups like Stiff Little Fingers, you know, speaking about the troubles in Ireland. You know, all of the UK bands and, you know, in, in America also as well with American hardcore, especially in California, you know, Dead Kennedys and Black Flag, or you go up to, you know, British Columbia with DOA and. You know, I mean, these were bands that were all, you know, politically aware and, you know, they were helping Husker Du at that time. And we listened and learned and that informed, you know, my personal growth and informed the band's growth for a while. Then, you know, we, we started to turn inward into personal politics after after a fashion. And but yeah, all of that stuff is, is really key and, uh, you know, really crucial to you know, sort of understanding that role. And like you said about artists, there have been many times in my career where I did not feel comfortable infusing every song with my personal politics. But, And I understand some artists feel that they have, they might lose a portion of their audience. And, and I understand that, but I guess my next thought, you know, that, that comes from that is, well, I'm looking at it as... If I get silenced, I'm not going to have an audience at all. Hmm. So maybe that's the imperative here. Mm -hmm. Well, and here's one of the rubs right now, Bob. Um, whether it was Husker Du uh, getting in the van and crossing uh, the country, or now with one of the most ferocious uh, and best albums of your career, uh, Blue Hearts, one of the best bands of your career, uh, Jason Narducci and that, that jokester on uh, drums, Mr. Worcester, <laughs> John Worcester. And yet you can't. You can't come to Metro and make us feel together of a piece while we listen to Blue Hearts and, and American Crisis and Next Generation, right? I mean, we can't play. We have been silenced. Well, yeah, well, I mean, you know, everybody everybody has to do what they what they can, you know? I mean, it's, you know, talking to, talking to family, talking to neighbors, you know, actually getting to know neighbors and, and starting, you know, small coalitions, even if it's just with your neighbors as to how to how to deal with these people that are making life impossible for all of us it it, it really it, it's the smallest things can still change the world and you know Husker Du and those hundreds of bands back in the 80s you know and you know people like Joe Shanahan who took a chance on a building and you know turned that in you know that changed the world 
Yeah, right? Steve Fallon. You know, and I mean, Wells. it's it's all it's just these little gestures that all of us, you know, what you guys do, what we're all, you know, just trying to, you know, share these experiences and spread the good word and try to get people get people to look outside of look outside of the establishment. I want to <laughs> jump up and down while you're on stage, Bob, and well, and this for the first time in our lives, you know, for the first time really uh, in history, uh, rock music isn't happening in the moment on stage in a room to bring us together. Yeah. It's, I'm sort of at a loss with all of that. I, I just, I can't, if there was ever a time that we all needed to come together and, and speak our, speak our hearts openly, this is, this is really it. And those of us who have a conscience where it's our obligation not to create dangerous situations for people, unlike our president or, you know, a handful of bands, you know, there seems to be one every couple of weeks who has to do something absolutely boneheaded that sets everybody back a far distance, you know, or I feel for the churches too, because, you know, popular Western music and, and, you know, Western traditional Western religion, I guess, Catholicism or Protestantism, I guess, you know, the early religions of, of the settlements of America, they're not that dissimilar. You know, people get together and sing and share and create community. So, you know, I'm struck by a song like Next Generation. Um, when I first heard it, I jotted down London Calling, you know, it, was, it just made me think about this call to a call to the future call you know it, it everybody's got to step up now you know and that's a big that's a big concept i mean um who, who is that next generation are they going to step up um do you feel that there is a, a sort of a groundswell in the in this direction uh, in, in in your sense of it? Oh Lord, oh Lord, well I'm I am almost of the age where it's two generations yeah. from now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think about so I think that I think about that next generation because the next generation after me we you know they're in their forties and they've already made some of their decisions. Uh, you know I think the youth of America they've got you know we've not left them a lot of uh, a lot of great resources to to rely upon to to continue to build the future they want um you know i trust you know from the protests that were happening late may early june i see the youth mobilizing you know they seem pretty fearless i'm grateful for that i'm of that age where it's you know getting out and protesting every day in large crowds might not be the best thing for my health but i am trying to do what i can I think, you know, the youth of America, they have truly grown up with this notion that we have to get away from guns, we have to get away from oil, and we have to keep church and state separate. Uh, I think they're very tolerant of alternative lifestyles. I think they understand that sexuality is not black and white, that there are many different colors and many different forms that sexuality takes. And I think they understand that there is no threat of, you know, trans folk using public restrooms, whichever one they feel most comfortable using. I mean, people really need to get over themselves and some of these small things that, again, being in Europe, it's like none of this is, you know, mm. you know, generally speaking in large cities in Europe, I mean, none of these things are, are particularly big issues. So I, you know, I mean, America's, 
you know, I, I just don't know how we've gone, how some people and their mentality have gone so far backwards so quickly. I guess maybe because that's what the leadership of this country is doing to those who follow them. Talking about the cycle of history, Bob. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of feel like this new box set, Distortion, 1989 to 2019. Holy cow. There's 730,000 songs on it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Your entire solo career yeah. and the career of Sugar. Um, it, it, but it feels of a piece with your, your book when we talked to you when that came out. It, you know, here's, here's me looking back. I don't do it a lot. I don't disavow my history. I don't live in the past, though. Uh, I'm wondering about the timing of this now, uh, giving us so much music all at once in one place. Towards the end of 2018, as we were getting ready to release Sunshine Rock, I thought, great, I'm going to get this album out, I'm going to tour, and then I'm going to take some time off. I'll probably take two, three years off. And, you know, the box set has been in the works for roughly five years, so I thought, wow, fall of 2020, I'll be, I'll be dormant. So, you know, Blue Hearts came out of nowhere. I couldn't stop writing that record. So I think that's why we have all of this at once. But yeah, Distortion is um, the, uh, the compendium of, of 30 years of work, you know, did what I could. Sugar was a, you know, just serendipitous, you know, it, it all that work that everybody did in the 80s you know, sort of leveled the ground for, you know, for the Pixies to come and build a nice three-story house. And then Nirvana <laughs> came and built, you know, built mm. a hundred, hundred story tower and, yeah, yeah. you know, sugar, sugar got to go have lunch on the 34th floor, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like, yeah, came back down out of that, you know, made a couple more records then you know, did my electronic, my gay electronic years, which, you know, hopefully the box set will, shine those records in a different light now and and then the you know the the 20 teens with the book and the the all the albums since you know it's just been you know pretty pretty amazing i it, you know sort of went the long way around on it but always sort of had in mind you know once i got up and running with workbook and especially with sugar i thought yeah i think i can i think i can keep doing this if i just you know stay true to the work and you know, just keep applying myself and try to be responsible and, you know, just show up and do do what I do. So I guess that was the that was probably the, the plan. <laughs> well, Bob, as always, it is a uh, complete and utter pleasure. We could talk to you for another hour, but then we'd have uh, two hours <laughs> of yes. radio. We only have one hour. <laughs> um, thank you, Bob Mould, once again for coming on Sound Opinions. Blue Hearts, what a killer record. Thanks, you guys. Bye-bye. Do you have thoughts on Bob Mould's career? Comment on Facebook, Twitter, or record a voice memo and send it to interact at soundopinions.org. When we return, the story of Hawkwind. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis, and that's a little bit of the song Silver Machine, one of the classics from Hawkwind. Hawkwind's a space rock band from England that began in 1969, and they're still going today. Yeah. Uh, they had some success in the UK in the 70s with uh, their music that touched on uh, a heavy science fiction thematic thread through most of their 
recordings, and they combined it with a straight-up rock and roll uh, with a 50s and 60s bent, but also futuristic psychedelia. They also heavily influenced the emerging punk scene with their DIY attitude and uh, really represented the underground in the post-60s era. Absolutely, Greg. I'm a big fan, and these guys were definitely all characters who believe that anyone can and should pick up an instrument and make music or art or dance or whatever moved them, as evidenced by the fact that there have been over 40 members of Hawkwind throughout the band's 50-plus year career. But really, Hawkwind railed against the kind of elitism and virtuosity of popular genres at the time, like progressive rock. Our guest today is Joe Banks, author of Hawkwind, Days of the Underground, Radical Escapism in the Age of Paranoia. Jim sat down with Joe to talk about the band's unique story, where you hear their influence today and more. Let's jump into the interview. Welcome to Sound Opinions. We are going to talk a little bit about your fantastic new book, about one of my all-time favorite bands, It's you and me and perhaps 30 other people. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly in America, yes. Hawkwind is a name that some people may have heard but have no idea what this band really was, uh, why it was important, why we're going to dig into them on Sound Opinions. So if a young, curious music fan comes to you and says, why should I care about (laughs) Hawkwind? You know, what would you say? The reason kind of Hawkwind to me are so important is because it's very easy to kind of think that everything kind of stops at the end of the the 60s, the end of the psychedelic 60s. The Beatles kind of obviously kind of break up, but somehow the the counterculture is kind of over. But Hawkwind form in 1969 and really their whole thing is to to reignite the the counterculture and the underground. And they Basically, uh, you know, the countercultural scene in the UK had essentially been very metropolitan, mostly based around London, whereas what Hawkwind do is that they uh, produce this new form of kind of what I call barbarian psychedelia, this kind of new, much more kind of rhythmic rhythmic take on psychedelia. And um, not only do they, you know, famously play any benefit gig going and and play anywhere, but they, they take this music outside of London, outside of the metropolis and into the provinces. And they basically become a, I describe them as a one band revolution in the 1970s. Incredibly important in, in, in creating this underground culture in Britain in the 1970s, because that's where the book in a way is called Days of the Underground, because rather than it mm-hmm. all being over at the end of the 60s, it's actually in the 70s when it really gets going. I am the were definitely outsider musicians. These were not beautiful people. Uh, the wonderful photos from your archive, uh, you know, they are hairy. They uh, look a little scruffy, dirty <laughs> would be another way to say it. Uh, you just know they kind of yeah. smelled bad. Uh, you know, um, you know, they're communal, biker, you know, drug-taken freaks in the sense of the 60s word, right? Living outside mm-hmm. of society, following only their own rules. And inspiring, Mm -hmm. because of all that, to English youth. Because everything that happened in psychedelia in 67, 68, it was rather art school, upper middle class, you Mm -hmm. know. Exactly. 
These guys were not. <laughs> no. No, absolutely not. I mean, they, they, their whole thing was not to, to become part of the Star Trip. They wanted to be, uh, you know, on the same level as their audience. They, they didn't want kind of, a, you know, kind of just spectators gawping at them. They wanted, you know, an audience that was going to participate. And it's a really important point that you're making there because even by 1970, 71, if you look at kind of the rest of the music in the UK, um, then it's, it's very much going towards progressive rock where the whole virtuosity is kind of, you know, the, the key thing. Or there's, uh, you know, the heavy rock scene is emerging. Or you've still got the kind of hangover from the 60s, bands like obviously Pink Floyd, but people like The Who and The Stones going, starting to form this idea of the rock canon. And the idea of, of these bands as kind of untouchable, you know, kind of part of a new pantheon of gods where Hawkwind were completely opposed to that. And they're one of the few bands that, that were kind of opposed to that. They didn't buy into that at all. They always tried to keep the music business at arm's length. Um, famously, you know, they had a couple of non-musicians in the band, you know, guys who just played, um, you know, kind of electronics effects. Their whole thing was that you didn't have to be a master musician to make music that people loved. And people did love it. And because they were so anti to all of the other values that were being propagated in the British music culture at the time. You know, and that's why uh, I think uh, they really only started to be appreciated in the U.S. and and even more so in, in the U.K. when punk came up. I was like, hey, these guys were were living by their own rules, non-musicians and all the rest. Uh, the hell with the the, the conventional record industry. Uh, they were they were doing that in seventy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the key points that I make in the book is that Hawkwind, they're not just a, a footnote in the story of punk. They're absolutely integral to it because, you know, who was going who was going to see Hawkwind before forming the punk bands? It was. You know, it was the, a lot of the guys who ended up in the Sex Pistols and the, the the Clash and the Damned. All of these guys were seeing Hawkwind and and you know seeing the example of how you didn't have to be a virtuoso musician to make a, a racket that people liked. Uh, and again, this was something that the the UK press missed. They they often characterised Hawkwind's audience as being a aging hippies people who hadn't got over the 60s, but actually it was a very young crowd and it was a young crowd who were getting increasingly fed up with the the prog uh, aristocracy and the, the, the classic rock aristocracy. You know, this idea that you had to pay your dues before you could make music. And um, and that's that's a key, key role that Hawkwind play in British music culture, really being a breeding ground for punk. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the characters, because any one of them would have made a fascinating biography. <laughs> um, let's start with the two non-musicians uh, who were doing what Eno did with far more uh, adulation from the, uh, mm -hmm. the British press, right? He's the mad mm -hmm. scientist genius, whereas yeah. Dick Mick... Uh, Michael Davies and Del Detmar uh, fooling around with synthesizers, adding all manner of interstellar noise to Hawkwind. You know, they don't they don't get the same credit. But what were those two doing? That's a very, very good point. Uh, the comparison with with Brian Eno, because Eno is, you know, uh, overtly coming from an art school background and obviously Roxy Music being an art school band, they get 
you know, all of this thing about, oh, isn't it amazing the way that he's kind of making these kind of eternal interjections of electronics? It's all very kind of, um, you know, kind of in speech marks, inverted commas. Whereas um, Dick Mick, who is the first guy who um, is, is the kind of electronics guy for Hawkwind, he's there from the start. He he finds or comes across this piece of signal testing uh, radio, it's for testing radio valves, a, a signal tester, which he calls the audio generator. He puts it through various effects and, you know, he literally comes up with what certainly Nick Turner describes as as the sound of Hawkwind, you know, the the whooshing and the bleeps and the shrieks and the howls, these strange <laughs> electronic sounds in the background. Which is what really I'm loving it. Uh, yeah, I attention. love all of those. Yeah, you know that's that's kind of you hear that you know that you're kind of hearing Hawkwind and you know he was he was just experimenting with the stuff just to see what sounds could could come out of it and you know trying to augment the sound trying to create an atmosphere that ran alongside the you know the the, the kind of the the metromanic riffs and and the kind of pounding rhythms and. Um, he actually uh, leaves in, I think it's kind of early 1971. He's involved in a road accident and he leaves the band temporarily. And a guy called Del Detmar takes over from him, um, basically doing a similar thing. But by this time, they've got an early uh, VCS3 synthesizer, uh, mm-hmm. which they're starting to experiment with uh, at the time. And, and Detmar particularly experiments with that. And then when Dick Mick returns a few months later... They, you know, there's no question of Del Detmar leaving the band. They just basically end up with two electronics guys yeah. making more these noise. crazy noises. <laughs> more noise, exactly. And they, they do an amazing job, actually, if you listen to the records and, and live of complementing each other and not, not getting in the way. But Detmar yeah. tends to be more on, on the VCS3, whereas um, Dick Mix stays on his primitive audio generator. And that's yeah. the whole point. It was a primitive sound. These guys weren't trying to be... Keith Emerson or Rick Wakeman, they weren't kind of trying to add frilly little Rococo solos to the to the music. They were enhancing its whole kind of space age, you know, uh, sound. You know that just that's that's yeah. and and that's and that sound comes from the electronics. Absolutely, these raw frequencies running through the music. Okay, now this is a footnote that uh, uh, many people in rock history know, but not everybody. Before Motorhead became one of the defining bands of heavy metal, right? Really mm. put that sound on the map. Uh, let me hit another gig. <laughs> That's right. How, how many Hawkwind albums is he on? So um, Lemmy joins the band at the end of 71, and he's then on their next uh four albums so that's and and, and for many people it's the the, the classic album so yeah do, yeah. do re mi facel facel latte do uh space ritual hall of the mountain grill and warrior on the edge of time and he absolutely has a, a huge impact on their sound uh he used to be a a guitar player rhythm guitarist by his own admission not a great one but he basically <laughs> kind of blags his way into the band and you know they say can anybody play bass he says yeah i can play bass and yeah. <laughs> um, you know when when their current bassist at the time doesn't turn up for a gig and he basically muscles his way in uh and he come, you know he has this incredibly you know driving rhythmic sound to his bass playing but also incredibly melodic if you listen to uh, those albums a lot of the melody on the albums is is coming from coming from the bass um but he very quickly becomes this talismanic figure 
for Hawkwind and, and most famously he's the guy who ends up singing on Silver Machine uh, which there is this go. kind of freakish freakishly large hit that they have in uh, mid-1972 Number three in the UK, released as a single, mm-hmm. whenever they'd be challenged and say, hey, you super freaks, what are, what are you doing with a hit? They're like, well, why put out a single if it's not going to be a hit? Mm-hmm. And what a weird, wonderful hit it is. It's, it's, it's a wonderful song. Um, it starts off with a classic example of uh, Dick Mick and Del Detmar's kind of uh, electronic sound. And then it's into this kind of sludgy space boogie. Um, but it really <laughs> is Lenny's... Lenny's vocal that absolutely makes it. You know, this is a man, kind of, I think I say in the book, he sounds like he sat astride some missile heading towards the heart of the sun, and as it's getting hotter and hotter, his kind of voice gets higher and higher. Um, but he, he, he's, he's, you know, it's the kind of song that both Hell's Angels and Teeny Boppers could shout along to, and it just becomes this huge hit. I mean, initially, because they, by this point, were such a big band in the underground, um, you know, people were buying it as soon as it came out, but then it starts getting played on, on Radio 1, which is our main kind of pop music station over here, and by, you know, the, 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 the popper, poppest kind of DJs of the time, and it just is propelled into the charts, but not only in Britain, but it becomes a massive hit all around Europe, um, Japan, places in Africa even. All right, the big two. We're finally at the big two. What I consider the driving forces. I think you do too, because you've mentioned the name Nick Turner mm-hmm. several times, yeah. woodwinds player, saxophonist. Uh, you haven't mentioned the name Dave Brock <laughs> once or twice. <laughs> Dave Brock is yeah. the guitarist. Dave Brock is the last uh, Hawkwind left standing, because they are mm-hmm. still extant to some mm-hmm. extent. Yes, they are. Um, I don't know. I saw one of the touring uh, Brock versions of Hawkwind uh, years ago. Uh, not that many years ago, 15. And, I, and I've and i seen Turner, and I've interviewed Turner. I like interviewing Turner. I He's like a good Turner's guy. band more. I, you know, Dave Brock uh, kind of became what Hawkwind was never going to be. He becomes the boss, and he begins to fire people as mm-hmm. the 70s progress, kick people out of his band. But tell us about those two. I think they were never better than the, when, when the tension was between them. Mm-hmm. when they were still a team. No, I agree. Um, I mean, <laughs> Dave Brock very much does get characterised as the guy who takes over the band and, as you say, starts to kind of hire and fire people. But I think, you know, within any band, you've got to have somebody who is is kind of giving some direction to things. And, you know, from the very start, I, I think Brock probably doesn't regard it as his band, but he is the guy writing most of the music. And um, he's he's the guy who, who forms you know, he forms the band initially, he pulls it together from a, through a few other people. Um, and his, I mean, his, his style of guitar playing, um, I mean, he starts off as a busker, um, but the style of electric guitar playing he has, this kind of damped chords, this kind of chuggy kind of stun guitar is what I call it, is, is absolutely unique. And that's really at the heart of the Hawkwind sound. Yeah, well, um, but it, it you know it's not where he came from. If we listen to "Hurry on Sundown," mm-hmm, mm-hmm. one of the catchier earlier, you say Busker is a guy who plays on the yeah. street corner. I mean, that is just like 
bad 60s shuffle folk. <laughs> 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 So Hawkman doesn't he doesn't start out weird, Mr. Brock. Well, but I think even when he was doing that, at the same time he was experimenting. I mean, when when they record Hori on Sundown, they they're also still playing this kind of crazy acid rock music. I think they just thought that they needed a couple of songs like Hori on Sundown, you know, as a kind of nice to know you, getting to know you kind of um, you know kind of songs, if you like, when they were talking to record companies rather than his fifteen minutes of of caveman noise. Um, you know, so I think even right. that I he may was be, being I may reasonably be, canny. Yeah. All right. So, uh, you know, I, I'm interviewing you solo, partly because of the uh, technical difficulties of uh, the never-ending lockdown. And sure. partly because Greg was like, what? You want to do a show about Hawkwind? Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, to a non-believer... Now, he knows them, obviously. I don't think Alex was nearly as familiar. Alex, are, Alex Claiborne, uh, one of my favorite producers. We have two. I love them both. <laughs> Um, where would you send young Alex? Where would you send uh, recalcitrant <laughs> Mr. Cott and say, start here? Okay, so the obvious answer to this question, well, obvious if you're a Hawkwind fan, is that you have to start a space ritual, which is their 1973 live album, um, which very much is this. Um, it's not exactly a concept album, but these were originally, the shows that they came from were a concept show. And... This this is a real kind of love them or hate them. I mean, this is kind of where you get the full kind of Hawkwind experience, um, you know, turned up to 11. Energy simulated. Incredible, um, you know, uh, kind of. Rip- I mean, that their songs, the riffs that they use. Um, I, I guess to say to somebody like Alex, that why are Hawkwind different from any other rock band? If you if you listen to I don't know something like "Smoke on the Water" by Deep Purple, you know, the riff is very strutting. Dun, 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 yeah, you know, yeah. you know. Whereas Hawkwind, the riffs are. Um, I, I describe them as being identity kind of blurring. They're kind of cyclical. They go around in circles. And Space Ritual, it's it, it's this 90-minute kind of blur of of sound. It's it's incredibly intense and heavy for the time. But then it's broken up by these amazing poetry readings um, from, from Robert Calvert. I would rather the firestorms of atmospheres than this cruel descent from a thousand years of dream into the starkness of the capsule. And also sometimes by these um, you know, electronic interjections as well, this kind of proto-ambient music. And, and it's not an easy listening experience, but it's an absolutely unique listening experience. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's incredible. Because we like to <laughs> yeah. end these... Uh, 
band dissections, genre dissections, uh, with where do you hear them coming out in the wash today? Oh, goodness. Uh, I mean, really, uh, I mean, a lot of the music that passes for psychedelia these days um, is, is not psychedelia in, 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 you know, like the birds or love. It's, it's very much the Hawkwind version of psychedelia, that kind of wall of noise, kind of immersive kind of sound. All of that comes from Hawkwind, uh, I think. Um, a lot of electronic musicians um, also uh, acknowledge the influence of Hawkwind. Uh, as mm-hmm. you said, right at the start there, Dick Mick and Detmar were there before Eno. And, uh, you know, a lot of the people who went on to, you know, be in the early electronic scene, industrial scene, um, were very influenced by them. Um, for instance, also somebody like Youth, who was in Killing Joke, but has gone on mm. to become, you know, a big dance music producer. He's a massive Hawkwind fan. Jimmy Corti, who was in the KLF, Hawkwind are his favourite band. Yeah. Um, but then that stretches, I think you can you can hear that still in a lot of electronic and drone music these days. I think Hawkwind are an influence. I would add to that list all of the so-called desert rock, stoner rock yeah. bands in the yeah. US. Yeah. I think, in fact, I saw Nick Turner's Hawkwind on, on a bill with uh, Sleep, which which played their new piece, Jerusalem. Yeah. You talk about a mind-blowing night, Joe Banks. 80 or 90 <laughs> minutes of Sleep doing all of Jerusalem, and followed by Nick Turner. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. uh, that's, that's, I guess, why I'm in the shape I'm in today. But. <laughs> uh. I think you're right. I think um, I think Josh Homme uh, from the original, you know, Desert Rock Band, Queens of the Stone yeah. Age, I think is is a bit of a fan. I mean, certainly if you listen to that first Queens of the Stone Age album, Regular oh, yeah. John, there's a Hawkwind track, practically yeah, yeah, for sure. And obviously Monster Magnet were, were massive Hawkwind fans. And, sure. and the whole grunge in Seattle scene, uh, actually, lots and lots of Hawkwind fans there. Mud Honey, big Hawkwind fans. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also yeah. they dress the same. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on Sound Opinions, Joe. It's a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much, Jim. Really enjoyed it. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we, uh, we have some catching up to do. We've got a lot of records that have come out in the last few months, and we are going to review the best of them. Looking forward to it. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you get such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. The show was produced by Andrew Gill and Alex Claiborne.